This is episode 85 of the Magic Detective Podcast. On this episode, you'll hear about the life of Milborn Christopher, master magician and master historian. That and more on this episode of the Magic Detective Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Magic Detective Podcast, your podcast home for magic history. I'm your host, Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective and this is episode number 85. And here we go again. Uh, first off, I have to say I am really grateful and humbled uh, by the responses that I received towards episode 84. Um I received several really incredible comments about that episode and gosh, all I can say is thank you. I, I, you know, I really appreciate everybody that's out there for being listeners and I am forever grateful for all of those of you that reach out to express your opinions on the program. Episode 84 was actually going to be two separate episodes and in the process uh, of recording them, I made an executive decision to drop some of the content and just make it one episode. And, and and actually, technically, it's still two episodes. It's just that was the first part. And sometime down the road, I will do a second uh, episode or a second part to uh, Houdini and the mediums and the spiritualists. But I just felt like if I did it all, uh, included everything in one episode, it was just going to be, it was going to run like 90 minutes and I, I felt like that's too much. So I, um, I whittled it down a little bit and, um, you'll get the other part sometime, probably, um, maybe in the next season, but, um, thank you again for everybody that reached out and just the, the, the wonderful comments. I, I was really, um, uh, happy and how well it was received. So today's subject is someone that I've always felt like I really should know more about, but prior to the research, I really didn't know that much about him yet. Um, where would I have been without his book, Houdini, The Untold Story, the first magic biography that I ever purchased? And come to think of it, I, I've got a number of Milburn Christopher books um, in my collection, Panorama of Magic, The Illustrated History of Magic, Milborn Christopher's Magic Book, and others. And I learned a lot about other magicians from him, but not so much about him. Uh, he, I guess uh, his um, stardom was a bit before my time in regards to his performing popularity, but uh, I honestly believe he is someone we should all pay homage to, and add to our list of favorite magicians. He deserves a very honored place in the history of magic. So, here we go. Welcome to the Milborn Christopher episode. He was born Milborn Cannon Christopher on March 23rd, 1914, one day before Houdini's birthday. He was born in Baltimore, Maryland. His interest in magic began with his father, Charles, who showed him a cut and restored string trick. And from that moment, magic dominated young Milborn's thoughts and life. 
William Rauscher, in his book, Milborn Christopher, The Man and His Magic, relates a story of a very young Milborn who volunteered at a carnival to be the barker and magician as they had just lost their barker. He successfully carried out his carnival career for a couple of days until until two people turned up in the audience who were vaguely familiar, his parents. And that was the end of that. He was 12 years old when he gave his first public performance at a church in Baltimore. So I don't know if the carnival stint was before or after. I have a feeling it was before, and he was unpaid for that. The church gig was probably his first paid event. Thrilled with his success, he studied even harder. Milborn was a book kid, later to be a book adult, meaning he loved to read, and he devoured every book in the public library pertaining to magic and the related arts. Milborn also developed some lifelong friendships. At 14, he met some local boys, Phil Thomas and Henry Fetch, known to his friends as Hen Fetch. Phil Thomas would go on to be the owner of the very popular Baltimore magic shop, the Yogi Magic Mart. Hen Fetch did not become a full-time professional, but as a part-time pro, created an enormous amount of very clever magic that he sold to magicians. In their early days, Phil and Milborn created a double act and cleverly called themselves Bill and Mill. According to a January 2006 Mum article by John Rockenbomber, they had a business card that read, Bill and Mill will fill the bill. Their combined idol at the time was the most famous magician in America, Howard Thurston. They would catch his show whenever he was in town and became very friendly with the elder performer. It was Thurston who sponsored Christopher's membership into the Society of American Magicians. At 17, Christopher had his first trick contribution printed in the June 1931 issue of The Sphinx. The trick was called Perplexion, and it's a vanishing milk trick. It's published under simply Milborn, no last name included at that point. A July 1932 issue of the Sphinx magazine has a column called Baltimore Briefs. Within the column, all three friends are mentioned. Phil T. Thomas as the modernistic magician who recently performed at a Boy Scouts of America program. Milborn Christopher as the best pocket magician a clever term for close-up magician which had not been created yet. And finally, Henry Fetch, the playboy of magic, who was doing weekly engagements for the Lutheran Summer Home for Children. In high school, Christopher discovered that not only was he an avid reader, but he also had the ability to write as well. He wrote for the school paper, and then amazingly, at the young age of 18, he wrote five articles for the Baltimore Post all on magic in Baltimore. And I just noticed that the dates of those articles, they were over the Thanksgiving week of 1932. It was a slow news week and perfect time for young Milborn to ply his trade. His articles cover the history of magic in Baltimore as well as current events of the Baltimore magic scene. And if you're unfamiliar with the history of magic in Baltimore, let me say it's on par with New York City and Chicago for the number of amazing performers that come from that locale. Magic history writer Henry Ridgely Evans lived in Baltimore for a time. Hen Fetch, as I mentioned, was from Baltimore, as was Thomas Worthington, 
Bill Thomas, Johnny Eck, George Goebel, Denny Haney, Dan Tini, Fulton Ausler, and folks like Bob McAllister had his first TV show in Baltimore, and Howie Schwartzman, though born in New York, settled in Baltimore. Ford's Theater in Baltimore is where Keller handed over the mantle of magic to Howard Thurston in 1908, and Baltimore is also where Rob Zabrecki was introduced to magic while touring with his band. Oh, and... Yours truly is a native of Baltimore as well. And there are many others born in and around the area, and forgive me if I don't mention everyone, I know that the current stock of Baltimore area magicians is top-notch. Anyway, back to Milbourne Christopher. November 4th, 1931, would be a day in Milbourne's life he would never forget. Not for magic, but rather for tragedy. His father, who had been out of work for several months due to the depression, took his own life. He locked himself in the bathroom with the gas flowing from a wall jet. Charles Christopher was only 43 years old. In July of 1936, Christopher appeared on the cover of the Sphinx magazine. The short article mentions he has made a specialty act out of rope routines. They also mention his ability to get articles written for major media outlets. He is rather humorously praised for being the first magician in history to smile for the cover of a magic magazine. And though this was not making fun of Christopher, but rather magicians as a whole. His trick of stretching a rope was now being sold through Max Holden's magic shop at this point. It would also appear later in the book Greater Magic. I rather enjoyed uh, a story about Christopher's gift for publicity. Uh, in, in one instance, he wrote an article on himself for the Washington Post. And I have to just back up a little bit. He didn't just write an article. He actually went to the Washington Post and he did some tricks for one of the editors there. And she got to talking to Christopher about his career and how he got started. And she said to him, I guess he was familiar with the paper because he, he had published a number of uh, articles in the national press on magic. And she said, hey, if you can, uh, if you can write your story, um, I'll print it up and put a picture of you in the paper. So he sat down at a typewriter and began to write his story. Amazing. It was about his experience, of course, as a young magician, but that was only the first part of his uh, of the plan he kind of uh, conceived. The next part has him driving directly to the White House. He gets to the front gate, and they ask him what his business is, and he does a, a, a coin manipulation or a coin trick of some kind, and then he says he wants to see the First Lady and they actually ushered him in to see Eleanor Roosevelt. Now, when they meet, she says to him, I really enjoyed reading your article. And thus, his plan so far was succeeding. You see, he had learned earlier that she was an avid reader of the news, and he used that information to get his article in the paper and then got to see her. It was all part of his plan. She then followed it up with inviting him to perform at the annual Easter egg roll. Now, his Easter egg roll performance was like many past magicians in many sense. Um, he performed on stage 
on the lawn of the White House. Thousands of people were in attendance. The stage at that time was near the White House itself, which in later years would be further down the hill from the White House. The difference in location was this. Because it was close to the White House, President Roosevelt, though unable to go outside to see the show, did watch the program from inside the White House through a window. Eleanor Roosevelt and her daughter Diana went out among the attendees. Christopher saw them and went over to do some magic. They were surrounded by press. Earlier in the day, Christopher had used a rabbit in his show, but he'd already given it away to a child. Yeah, that was back in the days when you could do that sort of thing. Uh, Now he was sans rabbit, which means without. So he did the next best thing. He took a white ball from his pocket and made it vanish and then reached over and made the ball reappear from the mouth of the president and first lady's daughter. The newspapers got an incredible photo with the caption, Egg Magic. They were unaware it was a billiard ball. It looked like Christopher was taking an egg from her mouth and he was not about to correct them. Thanks to the publicity generated from this event, a newsreel uh, in particular that came from this event. Uh, Hold on, hold on. In case you're not familiar, uh, there was no internet back then. Uh, TV, I'm not even sure. TV was on the, just barely starting. So they had these things called newsreels, which they would show at movie theaters. And they were kind of like the news of the day. So he was on one of these newsreels that was covering the White House Easter egg roll. And from this, Christopher started getting booked for overseas gigs. His act back then was unique, as he did mostly a show with rope. Apparently, the rope act was verbal, so it had lots of funny lines, as well as interesting music cues. And this was around 1936, and Christopher was now an international star. He was playing the finest venues across Europe. Fast forward to 1942. Christopher was drafted. He would become part of Patton's 3rd Army, 35th Special Services Division. These were soldier entertainers, comedians, singers, and the like. Their job was to entertain the soldiers on the front lines. Christopher was performing in many of the same countries that he had been in during 1936 and 37, but now instead of performing at the greatest posh theaters, Christopher was performing in open fields and in barns and makeshift wooden platforms, wherever a satisfactory place could be set up to entertain the troops. Maureen Christopher, Milbourne's wife, points out in a Linking Ring article that Milbourne was the first American magician to entertain the invasion forces in France. Also in 1942, Christopher published his first booklet for magicians called Tips on Tricks. And if that wasn't enough, writing his first booklet, being drafted in the army and sent to the front lines overseas to perform, also in April 1942, Christopher began writing for the Linking Ring magazine. And I also want to say that all during the 1930s and 40s, Milbourne Christopher was mentioned in nearly... Hear, the, hear me out here. And nearly every major magic magazine every month. Amazing. There is one incident that happened during the war that I've read now from three different sources, so I'm including it here. 
this is from a column that Maureen wrote for the Linking Ring in 1947, and it goes like this. A sergeant who volunteered to assist Christopher with a trick during a show for the artillery forces in central Germany seemed to know exactly what was expected of him before even being told. And noticing this, Christopher inquired, Ever seen me before? Here's what the soldier said. Three times in England, the GI answered. Once in Scotland. Twice at a replacement depot in France. Oh, and two years ago I came up for the same trick when you were in the Park Plaza in St. Louis. So it's safe to say that Milbourne Christopher, even during the war, had fans. After he was discharged from the Army, he returned to performing full-time. But on June 25, 1949, Christopher took out some time to marry Maureen Brooks. The two had met in 1945 while she was working for the Baltimore Sun newspaper, and she was assigned to interview him. Maureen, by the way, was not an assistant in his show. She remained a journalist for her entire life. She also did not frown upon her husband's occupation. William Rauscher points out in his book, Milbourne Christopher, The Man and His Magic, that she was happy with her husband's occupation and hobby because she knew it made him happy. And it was kind of one of those things, happy at work, happy at home. And the two remained happily married their entire lives until Chris's death. But before we get to that, let's dig a little deeper into his life. Here's a fun fact. The Mum, the periodical for the Society of American Magicians, from 1927 until 1941, was actually part of the Sphinx magazine. From 1941 to 47, it was part of Genie magazine. And then from 1941 until 1951, it was again part of the Sphinx magazine. Milbourne Christopher became editor in 1950, but something happened in 1951. The Mum became its own magazine, and Christopher was instrumental in making it great right from the start by using historical items and photos and such from his vast collection to spice up the magazine. He remained editor until 1956. From 1957 until 1958, Christopher served as president of the Society of American Magicians. Ever since his earliest days, Christopher was into books on magic, and he became an enormous collector of all things magic, from posters to playbills to ephemera to books and beyond. He had an incredible collection. His library alone held over 10,000 books on magic, and he served twice as the president for the Magic Collectors Association. Milborn Christopher was a pioneer of mixing the television medium with magic. He did many commercials for products. He made appearances on many popular TV shows of the day, and he starred in and produced magic specials for TV. He was the first. His most famous and one that's still available to view online was called the Festival of Magic. This was a 90-minute program for NBC sponsored by John Hancock Insurance and RCA. The show was hosted by popular comedian of the time, Ernie Kovacs. The show was presented live. In some respects, this show was way ahead of its time. The program featured an international cast of players, 
Lee King C. from China, June Merlin from Ireland, South African illusionist Robert Harbin, Rene Septembre from France, uh, Welsh manipulator Cardini, P.C. Sorkar from India with his illusions, and Christopher, who presented the deadly bullet-catching feat. This was chosen partially for the publicity aspect, and they certainly played up the danger angle and the fact that many people had died previously, which is all true, and it is dangerous. Strangely, the bullet-catching feat appeared near the hour mark of the show rather than being the closer. To close the show was an act unknown in America, the Parisian René Septembre. The special is actually quite interesting to watch all these many years later. The weakest part of the special, though, is Ernie Kovacs. His style of humor doesn't really hold up today, and I also wish that the special was in color, as I think that would add a lot. But it's certainly interesting to see how magic was presented in the late 1950s. And like I said, it's available on YouTube. If you go on YouTube and you type in the Festival of Magic in the search engine, you'll get to see the 90-minute performance. Next was 1962, when Christopher starred in a TV special called Magic, 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 along with actress Julie Harris and actor Zero Mostel. It was a smaller in scale than the previous program, and Christopher was the principal star. He did magic for his guests, shared magic history, and closed the show with the illusion of shooting a woman from a cannon into a large paper-covered drum. Also in 1962, Christopher worked with Jackie Gleason, the famed comedian, who portrayed a character he called Reginald Van Gleason III, who did a lot of magic. Eventually, Christopher was introduced in the show, and he carried on. This program was shot live to tape, though they were prepared to stop and reshoot if needed. Uh, as it turns out, they didn't need to. And it's also been pointed out that Milbourne Christopher never got to see this show, as he was on an airplane when the special aired. In 1967, Christopher was back again, this time as part of the Gary Moore show, they created an episode called The World's Greatest Magicians, and this show has some heavy hitters on it. And uh, some of this footage still exists today. I imagine uh, the entire special is out there somewhere. On the show were Mr. Electric, Marvin and Carol Roy, uh, P.C. Sorkar from India, Roy Benson, the comedy magician, the illusion act of Virgil and Julie, and finally Milbourne Christopher. He presented his sword basket, his Azra levitation, and the vanishing elephant. And I'm going to say that Christopher was probably the first magician to do the vanishing elephant on TV, and maybe the only magician up until that time to vanish an elephant since Houdini. Unfortunately, when the special was being shot, the producers of the show closed a curtain on the Vanishing Elephant illusion, so it looked great to the live audience in the studio, but it didn't look good on TV, and he, Christopher received a little bit of flack for that, but I, that was not his fault. Speaking of Houdini, Christopher's book, Houdini, the Untold Story, debuted in January 1969. The same year, his next TV special was Houdini, the Impossible Possible. And there's good news in regards to this special. It's been preserved on DVD by the Miracle Factory. The bad news, those DVDs are no longer available. 
basically in a nutshell, the special involved Milbourne recreating parts of Houdini's show. And along the way, uh, he brings in magician George Goebel, who performed a water barrel escape. A bit later, George's wife Carol presented Walking Through a Steel Plate, no doubt a take on Houdini's Walking Through a Brick Wall. Christopher did include seance demonstrations and concluded with something that he called the triple escape board. Christopher's book, Houdini, the Untold Story, was his attempt to really dig deep into the life of Houdini and dispel some of the errors that had creeped up in earlier biographies. He personally knew Bess Houdini. He knew Hardeen. He knew Bernard Ernst, Houdini's lawyer, and he knew Jim Collins, Houdini's chief assistant. Christopher collected an enormous amount of memorabilia, letters, and information on Houdini's life and career. He was determined to set the record straight, a theme which several other Houdini biographers have also used, including Ken Silverman and Bill Kalush. Christopher's book was met with great acclaim by the public and critics alike. Milbourne wasn't just doing TV in the 60s. He also had his own theater touring show that he called Christopher's Wonders. This was kind of a throwback to the golden age of magic in style and in presentation. And just the sheer number of effects used in the show is a tip-off of how different it would be to, say, a Copperfield or Henning or Siegfried and Roy type of show. 53, again, 53 separate magic effects in that show with a cast of six. Highlights from the show include the Blooming Rosebush, Azra Levitation and Vanish, Spirit Cabinet, Phantom Cage, Quick Change Routines, Vanishing Radio, Pillory Escape, Slot Machine Illusion, and more. By the way, that Slot Machine Illusion can be found in Book 6 of the Tarbell Course in Magic, and I just saw just yesterday a video of Mark Wilson doing basically the same thing, but his um, particular illusion looked like a vending machine, but it was based off of the um, slot machine illusion that Christopher had created. This next story comes from my friend Steve Baker, who was known as Mr. Escape. In fact, it's direct from Steve's website, which I'm copying here. No worries, though, because um, it just so happens that I... I'm the guy that wrote the website for him. Uh, Steve could tell a fine story, but it, when it came to writing it down, he just fell apart. So um, back in the day, I gathered a bunch of his stories and created his first website. Um, there were also newspaper articles to back this particular thing up as well. In 1969, Steve Baker, the escape artist, was presented with a challenge by Milbourne Christopher. And Steve had mentioned to me that at the time Houdini the Untold Story had just come out and Christopher was then the leading authority on Houdini. The challenge was for Steve to escape from a pair of Houdini's own handcuffs. The exact cuff that was shown to him was a pair of plug eights, which were known to be quite formidable. Steve accepted the challenge. He had a pair of plug eights in his collection, so he'd been working with them in preparation for the challenge. The whole thing was to take place at the Magic Extravaganza Convention, sponsored by the Oakland Magic Circle. The actual challenge would be part of the evening show. And before the challenge took place, Steve did an escape from a device he called the Torture Board, and Christopher was the one who locked him into that device. Steve escaped after several minutes. This was done to establish Steve as an escape artist, and then it was time 
for the challenge. Mr. Christopher walked on stage with a pair of handcuffs that were different from the ones that he had showed earlier. Steve quickly made that point known, and it dawned on him that what Mr. Christopher had brought out was a pair of kingbreakers. Basically, these were cuffs that Houdini would use to challenge other so-called escape artists, but they were designed so that the person would ultimately fail. Steve looked them over and decided to go ahead with the challenge. Here, he was faced with a pair of cuffs that he was frankly unprepared for. Mr. Christopher locked them on Steve, and in full view of the audience, he began his escape. It was a bit of a struggle, but in a little over a minute, Steve was free. The audience went wild. Christopher grabbed the microphone and said, I didn't think he could do it, but he was thrilled that Steve had succeeded. The event received good press. There were several pictures in the newspaper for this, and um, I'm sure it helped to promote the new Houdini book as well. It was a win-win all the way around. Although I have to say this, looking back on it, though I never asked Steve at the time, I have a feeling that Steve and Milborn Christopher designed this challenge. I don't take anything away from Steve in regards to escaping the cuffs. I'm sure he did that with no problem. But I have a feeling he knew that it was going to happen. That's just my two cents to add to the history of this. The two men stayed in contact for a long time after. Steve told me that one of his most prized possessions was his autographed copy of Houdini, The Untold Story. Later, in 1976, Christopher produced and starred in a show at the Lincoln Center in New York on March 19th. The show was called Magic vs. the Occult, and Christopher played the part of Houdini. It had needle swallowing, spirit exposures, and escapes. The show was sold out. In the 1970s, Christopher moves into another Houdini realm, and that is psychic investigation. He had studied it for years. He was a consultant on many projects regarding investigation. He wrote several books on the subject. The first, Medium, Mystics, and the Occult. Another was called ESP, Seers and Psychics, What the Occult Really Is. And his final book, Search for the Soul. Unlike Houdini, he did not attend a ton of seances, though he was known to attend the annual Houdini seance put on by Dorothy Dietrich and Dick Brooks. Christopher approached the topic of psychics and mediums and such in a scholarly fashion. He was respectful, but did not really believe in such things. Milborn Christopher was a prolific writer on magic. He wrote many articles in magazines. His books are must-haves for any magician, and these include The Panorama of Magic, The Illustrated History of Magic, Magic as a Picture History, Houdini the Untold Story, Houdini a Pictorial Life, Milborn Christopher's Magic Book, and a few title titles, I should say, just for magicians, which include 50 Tricks with a Thumb, Tips on Tricks, More Tips on Tricks, Stretching a Rope, Conjuring with Christopher, One Man Mental Magic, More One Man Mental Magic, and on and on it goes. He had a wonderful life, wonderful friends, and a wonderful wife, Maureen. In his last days, he was apparently very sick, likely heart disease. 
His wife had been away on a trip, and when she came back, she discovered him on the floor of their apartment and had him rushed to the hospital. Surgery was performed on him in an attempt to save his life, but he would later die from complications of that surgery on June 17, 1984. Magic lost an icon that day. His wife Maureen would go on to establish a foundation in his name. Part of the purpose of that foundation is to keep his books in print, but also to give out annual awards and categories that reflect those of Christopher's own career. In 2013, Maureen Christopher went on to join her husband in death. She was 93. I hope you've enjoyed this look into the life of Milbourne Christopher. I can tell you, the research on this was eye-opening because I just knew so little about Milbourne Christopher. I had several of his books, uh, but I just didn't know that much about him personally. He was from Baltimore. Uh, I, I, gosh, I wish I had gotten a chance to meet him, though, you know, I was a kid then, so fat chance of that happening. I can tell you, uh, I've been inspired by several of his creations since doing the research on this, and I'm putting some Christopher material in my show. Uh, by the way, I was also, <laughs> I was also surprised to see that some of his effects were printed in the Tarbell Course in Magic, and I used to do them in my show, so that was kind of eye-opening as well. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to comment about it. If you can leave a review or feedback, please do that. My name is Dean Carnegie. I am the Magic Detective. Thanks for listening, and until next time, be well and stay safe.